If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. The race no man wins. And I think for emphasis, I just want to read just one verse, which I believe would better make the impression I want to leave upon you than if I read the other verses that go with it. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Just that one verse on the subject of the race, no man wins. Again, Ephesians 5, 15. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. And that was written, as you know, 2,000 years ago, or nearly 2,000 years ago. But nothing has changed except a few things, but I just want to mention one, and that is that we're getting closer to the return of Christ. That means the satanic hostility is increasing. The compromising of the gospel is increasing. The apostasy away from Christ is increasing. But my reference as to the race that no man wins simply has to do with one thing. It's time. Time is totally undefeated. Time beats everybody. You never win against time. Time always wins. It has never been defeated by anyone. And to some extent, in a limited sense, that it would include our Lord Jesus. He lived and he died in time. Even when he was risen from the dead, it was in time. He's eternal, and he comes through time to our world from eternity. But even if you make that an exception, from the time that Adam and Eve were created to right now, to this very day, no one ever has won the war against time, meaning time is always advancing. So for me, I have been blessed with this understanding from a young man, uh, late teens, I think, when God stamped on my eyelids or on my eyeballs, eternity, I have always known, I've always been, every single day of my life, I've been cognizant of the fact that I'm not going to win against time. There is a day on the calendar that God says, today I require your soul. And I'm grateful for that because it's helped me when I get up in the morning, as well as meditating in the evening before I go to sleep on what I will be doing in the next day or so how to prioritize my time, to know what is truly important, what really matters. No man wins the race against time. Man, you know, is generic. No one wins the race against time. In one manner of speaking, we could look at it for a moment as an opponent, and it beats everybody. Everyone who is born dies. And if we were to include the doctrine of the rapture as we understand it, that Christ would come for his, will come for his church before the great tribulation, it's still a question of time. On that day, when Christ says, come up here, and time is no more, and we read that in the book of the Revelation, all of these things are relevant to how do we prioritize our life. How do you order your day? How do you order your life? Because nobody wins the race against time. You're going to die, and you're going to give an account for your life. And what excuses have passed by to me or to others will never pass the Lord. In one place, we are all equal all the time and always have been. There's 24 hours in one day. And we are given stewardship over those 24 hours as to what we have done. For those of you who remember, perhaps in high school, as I did, when we had to read Shakespeare, 
You may remember this part of Macbeth when Lady Macbeth comes in to her husband and tries to console him as he is going over in his mind the murder of King Duncan, for which he and his wife were responsible. And she says this, How now, my lord, why do you keep alone of sorriest fancies your companions making, using those thoughts which should indeed have died with them that think on? Things without all remedy should be without regard. What's done is done. She was saying here, Shakespeare's writing here, that you can't change the past. And whatever has happened has happened. I remember one night after a series of meetings that we had with one of our guest speakers years ago, having him say to me something very similar as we were having a late supper after services. And he said, so Brother Ray, he says, or pastor, he said, day is ended and what is done cannot be undone. And what should have been done cannot now be done. That always stuck with me. What's done is done, and it cannot be undone. That's the history of your life, good or bad. Whatever you have done is now done. Yet, we don't know how much space is left between this day here, February the 13th in the year 2022. You don't know how much space is left between this day here and the day God says, today I require your soul. You don't know. Could be as short as between now and this afternoon. It could be as long as, who knows, 50 years from now. But at the end, all total, what was done is then done and it cannot be undone. And what was supposed to be done that was never done can now not be done. Once again, I'm grateful to God that he stamped on my eyeballs for whatever his purpose is in my life. This concept, this truth, I always have known. I'm going to die. And what will my life have been? When you ask the question, as philosophers have throughout the years, of what is time, it is thought to be a fourth dimension. So we have in physics, we have length, then we have width, then we have depth. These are the three basic dimensions of physics and of our universe, though some scientists will go in their theory to say there's as many as 10 dimensions. But generally speaking, it's length, width, and depth, and then there's time. Let me give you a technical definition. Time is the continued sequence of existence and events that occurs in, and this is a definition that used the word apparently, in an apparently irreversible succession from the past through the present into the future. It's the fourth dimension, time. Whatever happens today will then become part of our past, and whatever is done is done and cannot be undone. And again, for us who believe in the word of God, called the Bible, whatever should have been done cannot now be done because it's over. Every day, every morning that you get up, think of it this way, the world begins again. Your life begins again. Everything else is in the past. I won't say it doesn't matter as Lady Macbeth was trying to comfort her husband here. She was just trying to be, oh, I don't know. She was a co-conspirator, so she was just trying to comfort him and maybe comfort herself. But she was just wondering why he kept thinking about an event that's without remedy, the murder of King Duncan. I don't know that it's terribly good to think too long on the past, but whenever I'm referring to or talking to someone and I refer to the past, and if they say to me, I don't want to talk about my past, I say, we use it as reference for the future. In other words, if you have a bad habit, a sinful habit, whatever it is, you want to use that as a reference to say, don't repeat that. Don't do that again. 
And so time is the sequence of our existence and of the events of our life, the thoughts that we think and accept. And every one of them is forging a chain of the person that you are today. But we'll get to that. This is the race that no man wins. Time in the end will beat us all. How many people lived an illusion or delusion? No, they know people die. Everybody knows that. But there's something in human nature, maybe inexplicable to our minds, that basically it's never spoken, but we live as though we're not going to die. Live as though there is no end to this life. And in some cases, I know by experience in dealing with people, they never consider what has been done. In other words, they never learn. They don't look back and say, wow, that was a mistake. Well, that was wrong, and so on. And so they stay the same. Well, no, they really don't stay the same, do they? They get worse. You know, I've learned two people get married here, you know, and time goes on. Now, they may grow together, but I don't think that that's the ordinary course of events for most people. I mean, you may grow closer. That's the way God would have it. But in many cases, it's sort of like this. And somebody will come, one of the spouses will come up and say, you're not the person I married. I've often counseled people say, nobody is the person that you married. Even if it's a week later, how much more when it's 10, 20, 30, 40 years later? No, it's not the same person. Because we are all in this succession of events and we are changing all the time. Now the Bible encourages us to say that we're changed into his image. And if that's what you want, and I know that you've sang about it a lot because I heard you, and you say, that's what I want. Make me more like Jesus. Then you have to also accept those things that were not so encouraging in the life of Christ, the life of the apostles, the life of all the saints of God, is the hostility of sinners and of satanic oppression and so on. Because that goes into growing with Christ. And we come up against all types of things that tests our faith, whether we actually believe this or not. As I mentioned before and during the communion service, I can't say that I'm always 100% convinced on who is a true believer in Christ and who is not. I think I understand. I think that I know. But ultimately, I have to surrender that to God. And I will say this. In the time period that we live in now, that we're going to be walking through day by day and week by week and month by month, I do believe that this is going to test us right to the maximum. And we're going to find out whether this faith that we have in Christ is real and it matches the book or it's illusory. For me, I truly want Jesus. I truly do. Listen to this quote. It's an anonymous quote. It says, you are free to make whatever choice you want, but you are not free from the consequences of the choice. Now that's profound. I don't know who wrote it. It's anonymous. You are free to make any choice you want. You can think whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. You can go, that's relatively speaking, wherever you want, but you're not free from the consequences, good or bad. Be not deceived, for God is not mocked, for whatsoever things a man sows, that shall he also reap. Very simple concept. Carrots go in the ground, carrots grow back up. Carrot seeds. Tomato plants go in the ground, tomatoes grow on the plants. It's a very simple concept. We sow right things, we reap right things, but not necessarily from the outer environment as much as from the inner environment, inside of us. In other words, it's correcting our thinking. I just mentioned to you, which has been certainly an operative verse of Scripture in my life, and we know that all things work together for the good of them that love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. His purpose. Not my goals, his purpose. Not what I set out to do, his purpose. And we know, he says, the apostle, Romans 8, 28, 
And we know that all things work together for the good of them that love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. You are free to make whatever choice you want, but you are not free from the consequences of the choice. Let me give you an illustration here. When we think about choices and consequences, I think our mind would tend to drift to, you know, what adultery will do, stealing will do, lying will do. But have you thought lately about this concept of what I said? You're forging the chains every day of the person that you are. Every day, your thought life is forging the chains of the man or the woman that you are now and will become in the future. And here's something that's kind of on the other side of things. When we read in 2 Timothy 1, 7, For God hath not given unto us the spirit of fear, but the power of love and the sound mind. How is it that decades after decades can go by, and there's no change in the life of people who claim to know Christ and have his peace, but they're still as fearful as they were 30, 40, 50 years ago? Think about it. Who doesn't want to be free from fear? Oh, we all want to be free from fear. Then you're going to have to start to make good choices here, right here, and deny these things. So what I'm trying to say is this. As the quote from an anonymous individual says that you're free to make whatever choice you want, but you're not free from the consequences. And if you want to be free from fear, you've got to think according to the word of God that no matter what comes up against your life, there's one thing among others that you will not do and you will not be afraid. No matter what. And then a little later, I'll give you this one too. It's going to be the way we're going to end this message. No matter what comes up against your life, you have another choice to make. At least it's the choice I've made. I will not quit. I will not give in. I will not give up. That's a choice. Amen. Choice that I've made. Now, I'm old enough now to retire. I have to go where everybody goes, where it's nice, where it's sunny, where it's all things are just laid out. It's sort of like a utopia, the way they picture it. I guess the impression I get from my friends, it's kind of a utopia. They see me shoveling snow, and they're doing something else that's much more acceptable. But I don't believe in utopia. I believe that this life is difficult, and I've made a choice not only to not be afraid, I've made a choice that no matter what, I'm not going to quit this walk with Jesus that I've started. And I realize that things that have come up against me and that are up against me today will be up against me in the future as well, but that choice is predetermined now. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give in, and I'm not going to have a spirit of fear rule and dictate over my life. Not going to happen doesn't mean I'm not going to be tempted. doesn't mean you're not going to be tempted to be afraid. You're going to be tempted to be afraid. You're going to be tempted to quit. You're going to be tempted to sit on the side of your bed and feel sorry for yourself. Self-pity. Poor me. But it doesn't help. And besides, it's not true. You're not the only one with problems in this world. Everybody has problems. And so you have to make another choice that you're not going to sit around and feel sorry for yourself. You're going to stand up. And I think I gave it to you last week. I'll paraphrase it from the King James Version, which we use to all the men here. Be strong and act like a man. Now, that's only for the men, not for the girls. You're supposed to act like a woman. We don't want women acting... I don't want women acting like men. I don't know what other people want. I don't want a woman coming up to me and acting like a man, and I don't want to have a man coming up to me and acting like a woman. I had to turn off the Olympics last night because I couldn't take it anymore. I mean it. I had to turn it off. I won't listen to this. I don't care if I want to be entertained with all the things going on in my life. I won't listen to this. I don't want a man talking to me like a woman or acting like a woman. And I don't want a woman talking to me who's acting like a man. Amen. It's just that simple. Oh, and if you're confused what you are, you take a shower and take a look. And then you say, oh, 
there it is. And now you know. And that's another problem solved. Be strong, the Bible says. Act like a man. And I think it's time for men to stand up and say, you know what? I've got to act like a man. Uh, pastime. Oh, I agree with that. It's pastime. Stand up, act like a man. Amen. I got someone yelling I'm on the phone and cursing at me. You got the wrong guy. Amen. It's a real good thing. You're on the phone. And real good thing, I was too busy to take the trouble to tell you what I'm actually thinking of, what I'm going to tell you. But I wouldn't be vulgar. Just simply this, these two words, you're fired. This man forgot who he's working for. I'm not working for him. Now you can see that what's underneath this calm, serene <laughs> surface <laughs> is one hot Irishman who was not always a Christian. But we let it go. I'm not easily intimidated, and I'm not easily frightened. And that's because I made choices through the decades to take those little troubles and those little trials and those little things and turn them into chains that would forge me into the man that I want to be. So you see, it's a great example here. We know of all the wrong that comes from adultery and all these things. But what about God saying, do this so you can be free from fear and free from, well, drug addiction and alcoholism and all these things, but unless we make those choices then we don't get the results. And so you're free to make whatever choice you want, but you're not free from the consequence. That strikes us all. In the book, I read it when it first came out years ago, and it had, had great success in sales, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. There's a lot of good in that book. I read it many years ago, but I want to give you one quote from it right now. In his book, Stephen Covey writes these words, As Eleanor Roosevelt observed, no one can hurt you without your consent. That's a lot of wisdom right there. No one can hurt you without your consent. And then he goes on to say, in the words of Gandhi, they cannot take away our self-respect if we do not give it to them. And then Covey went on to say this. This is very important. It is our willing permission, our consent to what happens to us that hurts us far more than what happens to us in the first place. I admit this is very hard to accept emotionally. Listen especially if we have had years and years of explaining our misery in the name of circumstance or someone else's behavior. But until a person can say deeply and honestly, I am what I am today because of the choices I made yesterday, that person cannot say, I choose otherwise. Do you realize that people have left this church over the years because I was the problem? Do you realize that people leave churches every week all over the world, I guess, but all over the United States, certainly. And if it's not the preacher, it's the people in the Christian education department. It's the way the nursery is run. It's this and it's that and the other thing. And do you realize that I don't even know I've ever met one professing Christian that never figured out that the problem in the church could be them? The pharisaical spirit and the self-righteousness of so many people perhaps prohibits them to realize that pastor wasn't the problem. If you want to know where all your problems lie, just look in the mirror. Stephen Covey is saying here, but until a person can say deeply and honestly, I am what I am today because of the choices I made yesterday. They can't take your self-respect unless you give it to them. And with the recent events that I mentioned to you just now, they ain't taking my self-respect. No way. If you live rightly, I don't mean perfectly, but if you live rightly before the Lord, you could hold your head up any place you go, and you don't have to be afraid of what people say. The fear of man brings a snare. And if you're deceived by that, then you're not wise. And that's the purpose of this message, is to make you wise, to make wise choices, because you're not going to beat the clock. The clock is going to beat you. You will have a day. You do have a day appointed to die, and you will give an account for your life and what will you say. You're going to blame me? Well, I know you're sitting here, so you're not going to blame me. Uh, you've been here a long time, many of you. You're not going to blame me. So, you're all, no, I kind of like you, kind of. 
You see, again, I want to repeat this. See, you know, people can come to me and tell me who the problem is, but I know better. They can't take your self-respect as Gandhi said. You gave it to them. Now, this is you know, an issue to be worked on with people. I'm not trying to be too, too hard about it, but I'm just trying to make a point. You can make whatever choice you want, but the consequences, that's in the hands of the way God has created things to be. And don't we live in a world now of constant blame? Like everybody's to blame. Everybody's not to blame. Christ teaches us so many, many things, and we are what we are by the choices we make hour by hour, day by day, week by week, month by month, and year by year. And that's what has made you today, for better or worse, that's what made you today the person that you are, the choice you made. I decided to follow Jesus. Well, a little over 45 years ago, I've never regretted a single day of that, I'll tell you. Well, in my understanding of where God wants me on the face of the earth to preach the gospel, I chose to obey him and be here with you. I chose that. And I don't regret my choices. And the choices of my past that I do regret, I always try to learn from them and say, don't do that again. That's not working. Let me just mention to you, we have to be reminded of this. What is really the end? As the book explains to us, what is really the end of this world? It's going to another world. The Bible only recognizes two destinations, heaven or hell. I believe we have so many problems in the church today because the preachers have not reminded people of the ultimate end of this life. I know the world religions recognize more than one place, perhaps, or whatever they say, but the Bible only recognizes two, heaven or hell. That's what Jesus taught. Now, you can read later on in Luke chapter 16, the verses, whether it was parabolic or whether it was an actual case that Jesus was reciting, doesn't matter. Point is still made. Of a man who's rich and Lazarus who's outside the man's house, he's poor. He's begging. He's got sickness and disease. The dogs are licking his wounds. He wants to even see if he can get crumbs, just crumbs, from the table of the rich man. And the rich man, well, he don't much care about the poor and the poor man. And so it says, Jesus says in Luke 16, he says that the rich man went to hell and the poor man went to heaven or Abraham's bosom at that time. But just to cut to the quick, the point of that story is that these are choices. I mean, not so much that Lazarus chose to be poor and not entirely that the man chose to be rich. I mean, we can assume some things of how he got rich and why he was rich, but the morality of the two. Now, as things switch around, we see Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom and he's comforted. And we see the man with all the wealth being tormented and actually begging, send Lazarus. Notice he hasn't changed. This is very important. It's very subtle. If you read Luke 16, send Lazarus to touch my tongue. He hasn't changed one bit in his attitude toward that poor man. And that's what eternity will be all about. The choices made here on this earth are forging you and me into the person that we will be, this is only in the manner of speaking now, for eternity. There'll be rich people in hell still saying, it's in that guy over here and all this. Because that's what they were in this life. And that's what they'll be in the next life forever. Except with much more happiness on the one end, heaven, and much more torment on the other with hell. That's why, let me just say this as a parenthetical statement. I always tell people suicide is never the answer. Ever. Never. You don't leap into eternity on the word of some theologian who says, God forgives suicide because the book doesn't address the subject. Suicide's in there. doesn't address the judgment that comes after it, good or bad. doesn't say. You don't do that because that's the final, that's the end. That's the end. And what I want to impart to you is this. A couple of things. Number one, we really need to hear more about this because this is the gospel. 
As I've told you over and over again throughout the years, that's the reason this cross even makes sense. Without the doctrine of eternal punishment, the gospel doesn't make sense. If you're going to a church where every week is about how you can be successful and wealthy, you can get that from the world. Because that's exactly what Napoleon Hill and all these other people taught. God has his own way of granting us materialistic prosperity. I've seen it in my own life. But I'm not a wealthy man. Not in material things. But I have all that I need. And then some. Because God is good. I don't need a billion dollars. I don't want a billion dollars. I want to just make the kingdom. And you know what? When my wife and I first went into ministry many long years ago now, the money, salary, and all that, if you took it all together, we were well below the poverty line. But you never knew it because God was always supplying. I used to have once in a while someone would come and say, you always dress so nice. And, you know, some of my clothes I was getting out of a goodwill place or, you know. And who knew? Because God is good. And he said that God would supply all that you have need of through his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, do you really believe it? Oh, yeah. Do you really believe it? Because the times in which we live right now and people are saying, oh, I'm going to this food store. There's nothing on the shelf. God has food on his shelves. Amen. He's got birds that can deliver it to your doorstep and you get it for free. Amen. You don't even need a coupon. God will give it to you. That's why I watch the news to be informed and so on. And I move on because God, there's God. Amen. Am I concerned about our country? I am certainly concerned, but I know that the answer is Jesus. The answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to hear more about heaven and hell from our pulpits so that the gospel makes sense and that people will prioritize their life because nobody beats the clock. It's the race that no man wins. It's the race that no man wins. And as Covey said, if you're saying, well, you know, it's been my home, it's been my environment, and it's been all these things, you're wrong. There's plenty of people in history who've had a tough beginning and a very good ending. And many people, and Solomon was one, who had a good beginning and a bad ending by choices. God said, don't, to Solomon, don't multiply horses. He multiplied horses. God said to Solomon, you know, don't have all these wives. And he had a thousand wives. That was a choice. It wasn't thrust upon him. And even when a circumstance is thrust upon you, which life does that, then you decide how you're going to handle this. You're going to pray or are you going to just sit there and worry? What good has worry done anyone? Tell me. I can tell you what evil it does. I've studied it. Why worry when you can pray? And when you pray, why bother going to God if you really don't believe he's going to answer? He's going to come through. Yeah. Let me go back to men and women. Men, you've got to suck it up. and Stop talking like a girl. Talk like a man. We have to act like men and women have to act like women. I prefer it that way. Amen. Oliver Wendell Holmes, you remember him? Chief jurist and legal scholar and so on, Supreme Court. Listen to what he says. What lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. And that's profound because it's saying that, well, the past is the past, can't be undone. The future isn't here yet because it's future. But what's inside you this morning? What was inside you when you came to this sanctuary? What was inside you? Not only what were you coming for, but why people stayed home? What was that kept them home? I have never seen, starting with my own life, I've never seen any purpose of going to church unless there was something that's going to come out of this. I'm a pragmatist. What's the practical outcome? What are we going to do with this? Well, let me help you here if I can, how to start making good choices or to continue to make good choices. Now, it doesn't matter how old you are. When you begin your life, begin with the end in mind. There's heaven and there's hell. So that as you're walking along, every choice, obviously you want to be in heaven, right? 
So you want to make sure every choice that you make is directed at that end. Now, what do you have to do to go to hell? Nothing. Because the Bible indicates that man is headed there right now. I literally laugh sometimes openly when I read or shake my head when I'm reading a book by somebody who talks about the message the universe has given to us and all this stuff. That's not what Jesus taught. So with the assumption that you want to go to heaven, everything you do in your life, every decision that you make, every thought that you have, you're lining it up with that goal, is to meet Jesus and have him say to you, well done, well done. Remember when Jesus met the woman whose daughter was demon-possessed and he just tested her? He said, it's not right for me to give food designed for Israel to dogs. It was a test. Your faith is being tested. You prayed for one thing and something else happened. And what happened? You just you gave up. And you're calling up everybody. You're going on Facebook. You're posting it for everybody to see. And basically, you're just saying that you are a quitter. Well, this is the time for truth here, so buckle up. No, you don't have to come out and say you're a quitter. Just everybody reads through. You're moaning and groaning. Anyway, the woman, in a sense, grabs Jesus and says, whoa, wait a second, wait, wait, wait a second, wait a second. Even the dogs get the crumbs. Your crumbs are better than anybody's meat. I want my daughter healed. I want my daughter delivered. And he says, oh, woman, great is thy faith. You see, this is a choice. It's a choice to believe God. So we start with the end in mind, heaven. And to be able to go to see Jesus and to stand before him and to have him say to you, well done. Now he says to this woman, great is your faith. He didn't say that to everybody. You have great faith. You want to be able to stand before Jesus and be able to hear him say, well done. That was well done. In a manner of speaking, like we have in the book of Job, God let Satan throw everything that Satan had, minus death, at Job. He says, you see my servant Job? He fears God and he hates evil and he turns away from evil. David said, yeah, I see him, but you know what? Touches health, touches children, touches business. They kept throwing disease at him, everything. But Job never cursed God. He had a lot of questions and some wrong ideas, but he never turned from God. He kept talking about, I'll come through this trial, I'll come through it like gold. And you say, uh, you know, don't raise your hand because you may regret it. <laughs> and you say, oh, I want to have Jesus say to me, well done. Don't raise your hand. So I want you to think about this. And you're going to have to accept what's on the battlefield. You're going to have to accept the reality of satanic hostility and the hostility of sinners and people who hate Jesus because that's what the book says. Go home and think about it. If you want to hear Jesus say, well done, then you're going to have to stay on the battlefield, play by the rules, and win the war. Well, you say, Jesus won the war. Fair enough. But the battles of your life are not over. And you're going to have to get the victory. How do I know that? Because I read the book of the Revelation. It says, to him that overcomes. To him that overcomes. Well, that already tells me that if there's something I have to overcome, it's something I'm going to have to fight. And God says, if I could put it this way, you better win. You better win this one. What do we say? Now, forgive me. I'm kind of rough on you today, but I don't know. And I'm not saying that God's not sympathetic, and he certainly sees our tears and will dry them one day. I'm not saying that. I'm just simply saying God is a good commander. He says, no, you're in that battle. You're going to win it. You have to win this battle, and you win it through faith and prayer and so on. So you start your life, wherever you are right now, with the end in mind. is to meet Jesus we all want to go to heaven, and that's good. But don't you want to meet Jesus, and this is just me dramatizing, and have him shake your hand and say, well done, my good and my faithful servant. Well done. Where are the quitters? Where are the people who gave up when it was too tough? Where are the people who signed up for battle but quit when the battle came? 
Never realized it was going to be this rough. Well, I don't know. But I do know what Patrick Henry said. Give me liberty or give me death. Give me Jesus one way or the other. And I don't like the way God wrote this book. I really don't. I wish he would have consulted. Don't you wish God would have consulted you before he wrote the Bible? I'm going to put in a line in here about the way is now. Well, no, no, no. We're going to amend that. He didn't give it to an editor. There it is. And that's how it goes. And that's how it is. And now we have to make a decision, a choice of overcoming in this life to get to the end, which is not simply just heaven, but it's standing before our commander in chief, the real one, Jesus, and have them say, well done. Well done. I want you to picture, and we've all been to a funeral. I want you to picture your at your funeral. And there's people lined up to speak. Some are family members, some are friends, co-workers. What are they saying about you? Your family members, what are they saying about you? Friends, co-workers, people in the neighborhood, acquaintances. I'm not proposing that what they say is accurate one way or the other. We often speak too highly of people, and quite frankly, we often speak too low of people, but I'm just trying to give you some type of picture that that day is coming for all of us. You're not going to beat the clock. Nobody ever has. This is the race that no man wins. What would they be saying about you at your funeral? Let's just say, it's your funeral and I'm the preacher. Well, you know I'm going to say nice things, right? But I'm telling you the truth, and I have a habit of doing that. Sometimes I've done funerals where I had a really search in my head, like, what can I say? Huh? You see, but when you're walking with God and then with the people of God, things just flow through your mind quickly. And I can say that I've done funerals for some really dear saints of God, and you couldn't say enough because that's what that person was. And when I've got a fish for something, how do I make this positive? How do I, you know, try to comfort mourning people? It's a real struggle sometimes because I don't know because their life confused me. In some cases, their life did not confuse me when it's on the negative side. And in those cases, and I'm going to tell you what I do, in those cases, I just kind of circumvent the person and just talk about Christ and the resurrection and the gospel. It's just a general message that I would give from this pulpit. Because I will not go up there and start talking about how they're walking on the streets of gold and they got all this that they deserved and all this type of thing when I'm not sure that that's the truth. I'm not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. So it becomes kind of a tenuous situation for a preacher, at least for me. And what I'm saying is, on the day that you die, what will people actually say? They know that you attend this church or you attend that church, but it doesn't matter. What will they say about you? What you want, well, really, I know it doesn't matter what people say. It only matters what God says. Let's go back to him. You want him to be able to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You don't want to go in there with your sword shiny. That means you haven't used it. You want to go in with it pitted. The sword is pitted and the shield has got dents in it. Why? From all the fiery darts and using the word of God and the breastplate of righteousness, true righteousness. And your feet were shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and on and on and on and on. You want to go and look like you've been in the battle, but actually have been a real soldier of Christ. A real soldier of Christ. Here's the knights of the round table and the story. So here comes the knights to King Arthur. And their shield is pitted and the sword is all bent and whatever. And here comes a knight with nothing on him. And King Arthur says to this knight, where are your scars? You don't get out of battle without scars. You don't get out of this life without scars. And you don't get out of serving Christ without taking energy and determination. And like I said a moment ago, you have to get up off the side of the bed and stop saying, poor me. You've got to realize this has happened before to every human being, but especially to those who desire to know Christ, it's going to happen. It's not pleasant when it does. 
But you're in the battle, and you're determined to win, and you're determined to have Christ look at you in the eyes. And let me tell you something about life in general. That's why I'm talking on the phone. That's easy. You blankety, 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 blank. But it was a different story when I walked in the room, because now you're looking at a man in his eye. But there's something about people's eyes. You've got like angry eyes and crazy eyes, soft eyes and all this. There's something when you look in a person's eyes that you can actually see, so to speak, their soul. You can see what's inside them. Strong men, weak men, you can see it in the eyes. It's in the eyes. You want to be able to look Jesus in the eyes. And the eyes, without the tongue, is saying, I did everything I could. I gave it my all. And for him to look at you and say, I know, well done. Thou good and faithful servant, well done. Because I told you it wasn't going to be easy, and it wasn't. But you never gave up. You never quit. You never gave in. So if you want to make good choices in the future, and if you've made good choices in the past, that's great. Keep the end in mind. And we are certainly seeing enough signs, aren't we, in the world in which we live today, including the rise of the occult and false religions and everything else, to say, okay, I'm going to make every choice that I make is going to be with that end in mind. And then the second one is never quit. Be determined. Never quit. Now, don't raise your hands because I know it's going to be a lot of hands. Do you feel like quitting? No, you say no. Well, I do. So I'm not sure I can identify with that, but I don't want to put you on the spot. I'm tempted to quit a lot. And quit a lot of things, believe me. And if I had my way, I would tell people exactly what I'm thinking. But that's not what we're called to do. So I say, okay, I'd like to quit this, but I won't. And that's a choice. And be determined to never, ever give in. So we have Winston Churchill during the Second World War giving his speech. And you may have heard parts of this. And he's giving his speech to the Harrow School when England was under attack. And it looked like Nazis, Germany, Germans, would win. They would take over England. They would lose everything. And in his speech, Churchill said this. But for everyone, surely what we have gone through in this period, I'm addressing myself to the, the school. Surely from this period of 10 months, this is the lesson. And he goes on through a few things. And then he says this. Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing Great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. And that's where we are right now. The enemy's might is apparently overwhelming, even overshadowing our God, who is the Almighty, El Shaddai. That's how it looks at the moment. We're losing, and we're going to lose. That's how it looks. But that's not what the book says. The book says it will reverse. It's going to turn around. Christ will return. Babe Ruth said this, you just can't beat the person who won't give up. Nelson Mandela said, it always seems impossible until it's done. Vince Lombardi, we've all heard this one, winners never quit and quitters never win. The author James Michener, character consists of what you do on the third and fourth tries. That statement is engorged with possibilities. Character is what you do on the third and fourth tries. That means you've been through one, and you've been through two, and it didn't work out too well, but now three, and then four, and who knows how many. That's character. That's character. Henry Ford, failure is only the opportunity to begin again, this time more intelligently. That is something that we need. People say, I'm starting all over again. You're doing the exact same way that you did it before, and it didn't work out the last 150 times. Well, yeah, I intelligence. It's not working out that way, working out this way. And God's way always works out. 1892. 
The era of bare-knuckle fighting is just about coming to a close. Boxing, you may want to know, in the 19th century, for most of the 19th century and before that, it was criminalized. It was illegal. In certain places, certain states and certain locations, if you had a fight, bare-knuckle fight, it was illegal. That's how brutal it was. Back in those days, men didn't fight for 15 rounds. They fought for 75 rounds, 110 rounds, out in the boiling sun or the rain or whatever. I'm not advocating this. I'm just simply saying I have this belief. Men and women, not just men, were tougher back then because they had to be. And, you know, we have people come here to some, ooh, it's chilly. Chilly? You realize how hot it is in some climates when people go to church and they sit there for hours and hours and hours and you're chilly? You could put sweaters on. You could put a coat on. We're so pampered. So these men would fight 75 rounds. It take hours, hours and hours. There were no rules. John L. Sullivan was the heavyweight champion of the world back in 1892. He was the type of man who would challenge other men in a bar, a saloon, to get up on top of the bar, so we're talking about up here somewhere, and jump off onto his stomach. I'm not saying that that's a good thing to do. I'm just saying that's how they lived back then. My stomach is so tough, he would have him jump off the bar. Of course, there was money and bets and what have you. But he never was defeated. He was never beat. Until 1892, when this well-mannered and very cultured gentleman came along. They called him Gentleman Jim Corbett because when he spoke, he was well-spoken. He was fairly well-read. John L. was different. He's going to fight John L. This is the first time they put on gloves, five ounces. Pretty much a bare fist if you've ever been hit by a glove. Five ounces isn't a lot. Corbett came up with a strategy. He knew that John L. Sullivan liked to corner his victims, his opponents rather, and get them in the corner and then just beat them. So Corbett decided to do this early on and pretend he was cornered by John L. Sullivan and just see how he was operating and how he was maneuvering in all of this here. John L. Sullivan had never lost a fight. Then Corbett figured out his system when he cornered somebody as the rounds went on. And then all of a sudden, boom, and boom, and boom. And he just kept hitting Sullivan until finally Sullivan went down. And there was now the Marcos of Queensbury rules, and he was counted out. And Gentleman Jim Corb became the heavyweight champion of the world for a few years. And over these years here with you, I've quoted his words, Corbett's, on what it takes to be a champion. Because they've always encouraged me. And there's one or two of us here who will use the expression with each other when we're in desperate straits. What is it that Corbett said when he was asked, what does it take to be a champion? This is what he said. Fight one more round. When your feet are so tired that you have to shuffle back to the center of the ring, fight one more round. When your arms are so tired that you can hardly lift your hands to come on guard, fight one more round. When your nose is bleeding and your eyes are black and you are so tired you wish your opponent would crack you one on the jaw and put you to sleep, fight one more round, remembering that the man who always fights one more round is never whipped. You're not going to beat the clock, my friends. The clock is going to beat you. It's going to beat me. So we have to order our life for the hazards that are ahead of us. And whatever God has in mind as far as the particular details of your life, you're going to have to prepare for that. It's no easy road. But I suggest to you that you have these two things in mind. You make choices that has the end in sight. Heaven. And every once in a while, I look over here, too, to remember that it still exists. And I must do my duty here as a preacher in this area of the world and keep in mind that that's what it's all about. 
plundering hell so we could populate heaven, as one evangelist said. That's what it's all about. And many will not receive this message. They're going to go to the preacher and say, today is about having a good day. And how you're supposed to be driving the same type of car he drives, which is never usually a cheap one. And on and on. Many of these preachers don't live in houses. They live in compounds. And they take in the unsuspecting with their rhetoric. But I say to you, don't be taken in by these things. It's hazardous duty to serve Christ with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, and all the strength. But you keep making choices with the end in mind because you're not going to beat the clock. It's a race no man wins. And then secondly, once you've started or you continue on your road with Jesus, you never quit. You never give in. You never give up. You keep on going forward with that end in mind with the hope that Jesus will look at you eye to eye and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I think about that day. Whenever I think about dying, I, always, I have this thought. I don't know why. I'm walking alone down a country road. I can't even see the celestial city. It's just there. And I know it's all over. This is all over. I think we'd all agree on that, that we're pretty much like, let's get this over with. God, strike the match. And it's this vision I have of just walking down this road. And in my mind, I know my duty is done. It's all done. And I'm going to go see the master. And it never gets any further. The vision or the thought never gets any further than that. But that I hope that when I see him, he can say to me, well done. A good and faithful servant, well done. What choices will you make starting today, not tomorrow? What choices will you make so that when the time comes and what is done is done and so on? Your heart has given you more assurance that Jesus will be saying to you, well done, well done, a good and faithful servant. Let me leave you one more thing. I met a man, a friend of mine, just a few weeks ago. I haven't seen him in a while. He's a Christian man. And that's what he said to me. He said, you know, I've got to start thinking about what am I going to do with the rest of my life. Now, he's not terribly old, but he's not really young either. And I told him, I said, well, that's always been in my mind. Always. Regardless of what you're going through or I'm going through, I've got to keep remembering the end. What will my life have been? What will it have meant? And apparently this is on people's minds. What are you going to do with your life? Get up off of the bed of self-pity. I realize that this is how Satan plays his games. Determine within your heart that you're not going to quit. Not now, not ever. You're never going to give in. And make the choice with the end in mind. That's where we're going. And when that day comes, it will certainly be beyond anything we could have imagined. Cares all past. Home at last. You ever go on a long trip? I did this week. I told you about it. Man, when I finally shut the engine off and I knew the bed was only a few feet away and a few minutes away, I felt so good just to get this day over with, only to get up in the morning and start it again. And the whole world starts again the next morning. Your life starts again every morning. Look, it starts this afternoon too. Let's go before the Lord. Let's bow our hearts. What will people say? And more importantly, what will the Lord say about your life? What will be said about you, what you did with your life? And keeping in mind that what you are today, you are by the choices that you have made. It wasn't your husband. It wasn't your wife. It wasn't the teacher. It wasn't the pastor. It wasn't our current president. It was you. You made the choice. God said, don't be angry, and you were, or you are. God said, don't hate, and you do, and you did, whatever. Get the point. These are choices that we make. It's choices. Make the right choice. Choose ye this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Lord, help us to make good choices. Because the race that no man ever wins is the race against time. It's against all of us. The clock is constantly ticking. And then on that day and that hour and that minute that's appointed for our death, it's over. And what's done is done. 
Help all of us, God, to make good choices. Help all of us, Father, to do what is right in your sight. To be brave and courageous, as we read some weeks ago in Joshua chapter 1. And to be strong and to be courageous. To be very courageous. Father, we give you the praise and we give you the glory. Because I trust that today, God, you're helping people to make good choices. I also trust that you're going to help people not to be blaming anyone and everything and circumstances and it's the whole world and it's everything. But they would have a deep understanding that who they are is what they chose to be. And even if they made choices, not understanding the consequences, the consequences stuck. Help us to look at the rewards, God. The rewards of righteousness, the rewards of diligence and so on. So we can make good choices. Lord, we make this choice right now to give you praise. Because you are working all things together for the good of them that love you and to those who are the called according to your purpose. That's what the book says. We don't understand it all, but that's what the book says. You working all things together for good. And we give you praise for that. And we give you thanks for that. We give you glory and we give you honor. For you are great and you are greatly to be praised. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Oh, we give you the blessing. We give you the glory. We give you the honor. We do. We give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor. You are great and greatly to be praised. So, let's be reminded to love the Lord our God with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, and all the strength. Then, love one another. We stick together, we'll make it. We'll make it. So that's our purpose, Lord. You gave it to us. We didn't have to invent it. Two great commandments. Love you with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, all the strength, and then to love one another. And we bless you for this. Some will and some won't. In fact, some will, many won't. But we're determined to be with those that will. We give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. And we give you all the honor today, Father, in Jesus' name. Can you say amen with me today? Amen. Amen. amen.